Welcome to this episode of The Trumpet Gurus Hang, and I am joined with my very good friend, and I mean seriously, my very good friend, my brother from another mother, Mr. Michael Chickowitz. What's up, Chick? How you doing, Jose? It's great to see you, man. Oh, brother, it has just been way too long. Yeah, that's kind of like the way of things nowadays. So, you know, we're just like you said earlier, rolling with the punches until it's all, you know, kind of safe to to hang again. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, thank God for uh, the fact that we do have Zoom. I mean, it's not the it, it's not my preferred way to keep in touch with people but uh you know it beats sending smoke signals so at least we can kind of see each other and and rap a little bit and, and catch up with each other so i mean you have not slowed down because of the pandemic i, I know you've had some deals going down uh, i talked to you just just as things were were uh were really going south and we were talking about doing this podcast and um you know you you had some things going on and i know that they've come to fruition so i just want to dive right into the deep end um you've had some great uh strides going on with uh well i guess maybe i should probably backtrack this a little bit for those of you who don't know mike uh the last name may seem a little bit familiar uh mike is the son of uh, the late great vincent chikowitz uh a phenomenal trumpet player and educator and you know mike has has kind of kept his dad's legacy alive with uh publishing some of his his great books like the flow studies and and things like that so i i know that that has been like a really major uh undertaking on your part so can you tell me a little bit about where where you are with the with the flow studies books and and uh you know how that's all been working out for you well yeah we started that in 2011 and um we we started with a long tone studies because that's pretty much uh my my father's signature uh, uh, approach to, you know, breathing and, and, and forming a real steady and even uh, flow of air to support sound. And uh, we started with that long tones book. And then we figured, okay, they had a syllabus at Northwestern that he used to print out uh, every semester or every year, maybe for his students that included a lot of different studies from different uh, method books, composers, what have you, a lot of Russian composers and things like that, that his students used to work out of. Well, as time went on, those syllabus things, I mean, all the eighth notes look like half notes because they were so Xeroxed so many times that, you know, it was just really difficult to to read through them. So uh, Mark Doolin and I, um, who is my partner in writing these books and everything. And he's down in Atlanta right now. And uh, we decided we wanted to get these uh, studies into a, a better format, more concise uh, finale files that really look great. And also we wanted to put together some text that was coming directly from my father uh, for the most part, and then also from some of his uh, most successful students, mm-hmm. so that people could uh, kind of get an insight as to how my father worked with them to, you know, kind of um, make clear his principles and his his methods of uh, making better trumpet players uh, for all practical purposes. Right. Um, so we published the Flow Study Volume 1, 
and then we published the flow study volume two and uh, that pretty much covered the whole syllabus and the the exercises in in, in flow flow studies number one is it are just really great exercises for pretty much players starting you know in their later years in high school and then of course into college and of course, professionals as well. The Flow Study 2 books, is, is that that book is really tough. I haven't even opened that book up. It's just really, that is for pretty much professional level players uh-huh. in many respects. But there's a lot of the Russian studies in that, in that book too that my father was really, really interested in because they were a way of developing lyrical playing based on the same concepts of a free flow of air to support everything you do. So we, we finished with that for the trumpet and then we moved on. I, I did a, a, a flow study, a long tone studies and flow studies for bass clef instruments. Oh, okay, cool. So that's probably one that you haven't seen yet. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it actually combined the two books, but for bass clef instruments and I had Jay Friedman, who was the principal trumpet, trombone player in uh, the CSO, along with Mick Mulcahy, who was assistant principal, do the forwards, along with Joe Alessi. And so between those three guys and Steve Mead, who is one of the most finest euphonium players in the world, we put together that book to try and get you know uh, the message out uh, of my father's pedagogy to lower brass players mm-hmm. and stuff. So that's pretty much where we left off, but now we have a new book coming out and we signed a deal with Hal Leonard and uh, we have uh, pretty much finished the first book now. And the first book is, is going to be, of course, for trumpet players, but it's aimed at more of the developmental player. In other words, you know, younger players, middle school, early high school, so what we've done is we've taken a lot of um, different things from the flow studies that my father worked from uh, with his students at Northwestern, but we've kind of edited them to a point where they don't tax young players unnecessarily, which in my mind just leads to more positive outcomes. Right as far as the results of your playing and everything you're I don't think it goes much above. I think there might be one uh, concert G above the staff in the whole book. And that's, we try to keep them just above the staff or right at the top of the staff at the, that's, that's it. We don't go beyond that mm-hmm. because we don't want young students trying to play high notes and everything when they haven't really even developed their, mid-range mm-hmm. and stuff and just the basic fundamentals of playing a brass instrument in mm-hmm. my my opinion most you know when, when i was growing up you know you had a an elementary school band that you started and i started in fourth grade actually maybe even third grade i might have started it and uh we had band and orchestra in elementary school and by the time i got to middle school i was you know fairly proficient Nowadays, you don't have that. There's no money for that in elementary schools for for the most part. So you're starting in middle school. So we wanted to create a book that was going to 
to kind of set players up for uh, a successful result so they, that they would be motivated to want to play more. Right. You know, if, if you're frustrated by the instrument and everything and you're trying to do things just because they're on the paper and, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to achieve these things and execute these things and you're failing at every turn, it's, it's not going to create a whole lot of incentive for you to want to keep on with that stuff. Right. So that's where we, we've kind of left off. The book should be dropping within the next couple of weeks. We decided to get some endorsements uh, to put into the book. And I'm not going to say much more about that. We're waiting for one endorsement and that's it. Um, we've got, I think, 10 others that are going to be in the inside front and back covers and mm-hmm. stuff like that. That will kind of point out what the book is supposed to do right. and what these players uh, feel it, it has achieved. So we're just waiting for that. And then hopefully, depending on, you know, the, the volume of sales and things like that, we're hopeful that we're going to be doing another three books for mm-hmm. Hal Leonard that will uh, take the same exact material and put it into uh, a, a French horn book, a trombone and euphonium book, and then a tuba book. Right. So we'll have all the exercises in the same keys uh, hopefully, you know, and stuff to to be used by all the different brass instruments. That's what that way a band director can come in with his middle school students and say, "Okay, let's play number two in the lyrical studies, or number five in the flow studies, or right. number one in the articulation studies." You mm-hmm. know, and they have the long tone. So it's long tones, flow studies, lyrical studies, and articulation studies. And the people that are involved in the book are all my dad's former students. And um, I believe that Channing Philbrook, the professor of trumpet at Northwestern, along with Mike Saxon and Tom Rolfs and Dave Bilger, um, he's, he did the intro to the flow studies and Matt and Carrie Lee, who were really close with my father, did the, the lyrical studies and then Mary Klausik. Uh, from uh, Victoria in Canada did the articulation studies. And then Tom Rolfs and Larry Knopp, Tom Rolfs, principal in the Boston Symphony, and Larry Knopp, principal trumpet in the Vancouver Symphony, are playing all of the exercises. Right. So there will be a download that you can go to the Hal Leonard site and mm-hmm. download all the materials with a, I don't know if it's going to be a code or what. Mm-hmm. But people will be able to hear all those exercises being played by one of those two guys. That's awesome. And yeah, because that's, that's such a huge part of, uh, of the development, especially at that stage, but, you know, to be able to hear what your target is and, right. you know, and playing along, you know, for me, it, it was, it was playing along. Unfortunately, it wasn't playing along with, you know, your dad, it was, you know, trying to play along with, with Maynard or playing along with Bill Chase. And I mean, that's where right. I developed a lot of my bad habits. But, uh, you know, but, but that, that does I'm right there with you, buddy, <laughs> but that formulates your concept of sound and that formulates, you know, your, your approach to the instrument. And I think that, uh, you know, when you're lucky enough to have access to, uh, quality players, that certainly helps you out. And that's the thing that right now we're in the information age. So the stuff is all out there, but you just got to know where to go. And having somebody playing exercises and saying, yes, this is the standard that you want to shoot for, that makes it so much easier. 
I, I just wish that, you know, in, in my uh, experience doing master classes and things like that with, with younger students and everything, the, the one thing that is really kind of the tough nut to crack is getting them to go on and listen to things. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget one month I was in Kansas somewhere, I think Oberlin Park. I was doing a master class and I was asking students who they listened to. And they go, uh, uh, I don't really listen. And I said, so, well, do you know who Maynard Ferguson is? And they said, no. Do you know who Bud Herseth was? No. You know, I said, well, how are you going to figure out what you want to sound like unless you listen to other trumpet players? So, you know, getting them to listen, I think that, you know, it's incumbent on band directors to, to get them involved with listening and trying to create some incentive-laden uh, program to where kids say, hey, I checked this out. Maybe we can play this before band or something like that on the speakers. Or the band directors should really have something queued up and playing while their students come into the rehearsal and get set up and everything like that, just to be, you know, kind of infusing them with a little bit of, you know, um, you know, quality sound and quality execution and stuff. And maybe that'll perk up some kid's ear and say, wow, who's that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's what I'm hoping that maybe these books will help with. Yeah. I mean, cause I remember like being, you know, being a kid, and, uh, you know, fortunately, there were a lot of trumpet players who were making a lot of public appearances, meaning like on TV. So, you know, you would turn on, uh, you know, the, the Tonight Show. And, of course, you had Doc on there. But, you know, you'd also see people like, uh, yeah, I remember watching Al Hurt. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, uh, Pops, you know, Louis was still alive at that point. So he was, you know, showing up on these variety shows. Uh, Herb Alpert was big. Uh, you know, uh, Maynard was playing a lot. Like a, he was on like the Dinosaur Show and Mike Douglas and things like that. So, right. you know, you, you would have some of the great players and they're showing up or, you know, you're watching the Jerry Lewis telethon and, and you've got Buddy's band and, you know, things like right. that. So you always had, you had trumpet that was showing up in the public eye. And, you know, with the exception. part of the culture. Yeah, except with the exception right now, I mean, there's only a couple of trumpet players who have any uh, level of public exposure outside of the music community. You know, so you've got guys like Chris Bodie and, you know, Winton and, you know, those guys, you know, they kind of have those names and they're and they're out there. But other than that, there, there are no examples I think Wayne uh, has a little bit of that. He's, uh, you know, because of the Incredibles soundtracks Mm -hmm. and things like that. I think that he's starting to get a little bit of that crossover uh, appeal and everything to maybe audiences that don't really know who he is because he's in the studio and you and I both know that that you know those people are unsung heroes for the yeah, most part. Yeah, yeah. Most of them just need to you know go away somewhere because they're making life more difficult for the rest of us with the stuff yeah, they're pulling off. Exactly. Yeah, it's like oh my gosh, my gosh. Well, you know, actually, it's kind of interesting because you know you're, you know as we're talking about different influences and people that you you get to hear. And I mean, obviously, you grow up in a house with uh, you know a, a world class uh, performer and teacher. You know, and your dad. Um, 
I think, you, you know, obviously you probably, you had tons of people coming in and out of, of the circle, the family circle, uh, you know, Very uh, much so. all the time. And then you go a complete 180 from, you know, life in the CSO to life on the road with some great acts and, and being, being exposed to some different people. Now, see, I know the backstory because you and I've had some great conversations, um, but not everybody knows some of these stories. So I want to kind of talk about them. So one, one of the things that uh, really just kind of just made me go, wow, that, that, that had to be so much fun. Was you talking about your days uh, when you were in the, in the Navy and you were stationed out in Hawaii and some of the cats that you got to, to hang out with and become friends with and that I know had influence on you as a player. So um, who were some of those guys that you were hanging out with back in the day? Well, I'll, I'll preface all of this with the backstory that you're, you're familiar with. And that is that, you know, uh, being the son of Vincent Chickowitz and the expectations that that kind of fostered in my playing career and everything was a little bit daunting to say, to say the least. Uh, when you have uh, the second trumpet player with the Chicago Symphony who had arguably the best brass section in the world at the time and everything, and also his prowess as uh, a pedagogue uh, was very intimidating to me. And I just knew that in the back of my mind, okay, am I going to set myself up into a life of constant frustration being compared to my father if I decided to become an orchestral player? And everything, and I thought to myself, well, number one, I don't know if I have that kind of ironclad dedication to practicing and everything that really you need to achieve that kind of level of performance. You know, to be a Bud Herseth, to be a Chris Martin, or you know, uh, you know, uh, Esteban Batallon, who's the new trumpet player with the CSO. And so I thought, I don't want to constantly be compared to my father as far as playing goes. And plus, back during those days, like you said, Bill Chase was around, Maynard was around, all these great high note players. And playing high notes, man, was, you know, that's one of those kind of glory things that, you know, if you can play high, man, people, they dig that and stuff. So I just kind of, you know, got more... Uh, exposed to that side of music as a way to express my own voice. So consequently, you know, in high school and everything like that, and in the beginning of my time in the service, you know, I was playing in big bands and stuff like that. Well, I got a, a change of duty station midway through my naval, naval career, short as it was, um, and I got sent to Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. So I was really psyched about that. But I, to be honest, I didn't know that I was going to be a player once I left the service. But all that changed when I got to Hawaii and I heard some guys talking about a guy named Jerry Hay, who was like this really great trumpet player on the island that I should check out and everything. And uh, I remember going to a, uh, a concert at the Waikiki Shell in 1974, I think. And um, 
it was sea wind, but they were called Ox at the time. Mm -hmm. And they were opening up for the CTI Jazz All-Stars. That was the first time I heard Jerry. And as an opening act, you know, it's like, you know, 40-minute set, that kind of thing. I didn't really hear anything that really, you know, said, wow, this guy is like really just amazing. But the next thing I saw him do, they opened up for Deodato. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I remember Deodato. Another CTI artist and everything. And uh, they opened up for for them, uh, for him at uh, Andrews Amphitheater on the University of Hawaii uh, campus. And he played some stuff that night that was like, are you kidding me? So I went up to him afterwards and uh, it turned out he was from Dixon, Illinois. He had studied with Charlie Geyer, who was my teacher in high school Uh and stuff. So we immediately kind of connected and stuff. But he was, you know, I mean, to me, he was like, wow, this this guy is like way above my level, of course. And so I started getting together with him and a guy named Larry Hall Mm -hmm. and Gary Grant at the University of Hawaii to practice. And. You know, it's funny because I, I'm I'm writing a book about Jerry right now. Oh, cool. And we're working on it together and everything. And, and it's funny because I was asking him about those days. And he told me, yeah, you know, we all said, man, you got got this great sound and everything like that. But you couldn't get around the horn at all. It's like I couldn't play a C scale faster than 120, pretty much. So going to hook up with them and listening to what they could do was my jaws would be sore for like two days from laughing. Uh It was so ridiculous what they could do. So that inspired me and going to see like ox and everything, like a couple nights a week for, you know, the whole time I was there and then finally getting closer to all those guys and going on to gigs with them and everything I heard Jerry doing a couple of big band things that he was working with in Hawaii and everything that just absolutely opened my eyes as to how to play that style of music. Mm-hmm. So connecting with those guys actually motivated me to continue a career in playing. Yeah. So and and of course those guys when they got to LA and everything, they completely took over the town as yeah. far as trumpet playing. Yeah, completely changed the face of uh, of the use of trumpet in popular music. Well, pop music, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and just such nice guys too, man. You know, I, I've uh, been fortunate really enough uh, to to have Jerry on the show a couple times, and Gary, and and uh, you know, we've gotten to develop a, a relationship. So that that's cool stuff. You know, it's it's just a lot of fun to. Uh, I to- love Jerry when he said, I, "I said, you know, yeah, I just I went over and uh, hung out with Larry Hall and." And, uh, you know, talk to him about the early days and everything. I mean, Jerry just goes, boy, that guy is such an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Larry Hall is about the nicest guy you will ever meet in your entire life. He is such a great guy. And he's got such great stories about Indiana and stuff when they were there, uh, you know, with Charlie Davis and Mm -hmm. Larry and him and a few other people and stuff. And just the the hours that they put in practicing was yeah almost unfathomable yeah it, it, it's the the hours put in practicing and then that the being a part of history 
basically. You know, right. so much that, that that went on and so many different artists that they've been able to work with over the years. It's just, it's mind-blowing. Right. Well, so. if you look at Jerry Hay, if, you know, there's a great site out there called All Music. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, basically lists anybody uh, who is on a recording. It lists kind of like the, the right. recordings that they've been on and stuff. Jerry's Jerry's all music page is like forty four pages long. Yeah, and I mean it's small print too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's absurd. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I I um, for years, uh, my my taste in music was driven by um, who was on it in terms of session players. You know, I would look and and obviously if it, I knew any time that it said Quincy Jones as a producer. Uh, I was probably going to want to listen to it, you know, because I knew that Jerry and, and Gary and, and Chuck and those guys were going to exactly. be there. Um, and then, you know, I would just go through liner notes and it's like, okay, if, if those guys are on a, on a track, I'm buying it and I'm listening to it, even if there's only and, one track, but. You right. Know. And that, and I'll tell you, that's, that's something that's missing nowadays. You know, you oh, don't yeah. get to look at a, at a, at a bunch of uh, CDs or records and everything and see the personnel because everything is streaming yeah and they don't list that kind of thing if you're if you're just downloading tunes off of you know itunes or spotify or something like that the personnel is almost you know it's like there's no inside baseball left yeah yeah and i i i really thrive on that I, i i love those threads like you're talking about when you saw a certain producer like if it was david foster oh yeah i'm gonna check that out because it's gonna be in that wheelhouse of sound that i really really enjoy yeah same thing with quincy Arif martin was another guy Mm -hmm. and stuff that was really great at all that stuff so so yeah i hear what you're saying it's it's that and unfortunately that seems to be gone now yeah yeah so yeah i I, look so the, the, to bring it back around, I mean, I use all music a lot. So anytime I'm listening, if I hear something and like if there's a you know really cool trumpet solo or something on it, I mean, unless it's somebody whose sound I immediately recognize, you know, if it's, if it's somebody like Arturo, it's like, ah, eh, it's Arturo. You know, you just, you just know it. There, there's no getting around it. But if something else, I'm like, hmm, I wonder who that is. And, and I'll, you know, I'll search for the song and, you know, right. look through the credits. And sometimes they have the, the horn section credited. Sometimes they don't. So, exactly, uh, but you know, it, it helps you to, to develop that concept of sound because, you know, if you never can identify who those players are, then you can't search for their their work and their other work. Yeah, and I, like for me, I like going back. So, you know, uh, like with Jerry, um, you know, like when I first got turned on to Jerry's stuff, then it's like, okay, well, I want to find other stuff. So I would find anything he's playing on going forward. But then I'd start to go back and listen to other things and then that like Some okay well stuff yeah then so then that go well then that that turned me on the obviously chuck because chuck was playing with him. and i'm listening to chuck i'm like oh well huh well i didn't realize he played with buddy's band so i'll go back and listen to some of that stuff and it's like oh well who's this other guy playing with him and then, and so it starts to open up these little wormholes and you go yeah. in and you find this richness and it may not be a trumpet player it could be in you know, like oh this sax player or this you know yeah i really like this rhythm section so it it helps you to become educated about music as opposed to just listening to a tune. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's the one thing about doing this book with Jerry is I've gotten to hear all the stories about these different sessions that they were on. As a matter of fact, the last uh, interviewing 
that I did with him, we went through about, I think it was like 20 different records that were like the iconic records that he played on. Mm. And we went down almost track by track. Oh, man. On each of those. And he told me about how he got certain ideas Mm -hmm. for different horn lines and things like that, what the situation in the studio was and everything. And just hearing, especially, I'm one of those guys that loves to hear about the the evolution of things, the beginnings of things, that small little germ from which the big tree grows and everything. And hearing some of those early stories when they first moved to LA and when like he got his first call from Quincy and stuff and, and that relationship and how it's blossomed. I mean, they are, they are still so close and everything uh, even to this day. And they're really a part of each other's life in such a huge way Yeah, because what Jerry did with the horns on a lot of that stuff really did change the shape of pop music. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I tell you what, when you guys get done with that book and uh, you're ready to, uh, to do your press junket, make sure you guys save some time for me because. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe that, that hopefully by that time we'll be done with all of this uh, COVID craziness and we can just do that as a live session. This is going to take a while. I mean, I've worked, been working on it for about two years now. But the thing is, it's been very sporadic because I've had things come up in my life that have caused me to take a break from it and things like that. But it's I'm, I'm starting to roll ahead with it, which is good. Good so, deal. Good yeah. deal. So, um, you know, speaking kind of like the evolution of stuff, um, you and we're talking about like the way that you're, you know, you've taken your, your father's works and, and you've kind of you've codified them you brought them together published them and now you're kind of evolving um almost i don't want to say um stripping down but it's like uh, reverse engineering i guess is a better way of saying it so you're taking you're taking that that really high level stuff and you're kind of breaking it down into its, its fundamental components and making it uh, more accessible to other people which is an evolution in and of itself um and you've been doing a lot of work with uh kind of training changing the trying to change the shape of the trumpet world itself the community uh with uh, a project that you have uh going on and i know COVID has kind of sidetracked things but uh, would you like to share a little bit about your work with uh the wts uh sure yeah um well you know it's like we were talking before the the actual uh broadcast here uh, WTS was just uh, an idea that Rich Stolzel and I had. Rich Stolzel hosted the 2013 ITG seminar or ITG conference in uh, 2013 in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I got to know him and his wife, Val, there. And then in 2015, we saw each other at Midwest. And, or maybe it was even 2014. And we came up with this idea, or he had this idea germinating from his Grand Valley State uh, seminars that he had been putting on for about seven or eight years or something like that. And he wanted to make this organization a lot more focused on education. And again, like I was saying before the, the broadcast, 
we wanted to try and figure out a way, number one, to get the whole world involved. And with the advent of new communication technology and everything like that, we figured now was the time to where it would be a lot easier to link different countries around the world and try and form WTS chapters in each of those countries to share information, share information about playing, about pedagogy, about existing artists in those different, in all the different countries that we have no idea about. I mean, there's probably a ton of great players in Austria, but we don't really focus on that because we're so far removed from it. But with communication technology these days, we have the ability to connect with people from those areas and everything and expose us to players that we didn't even know existed that are phenomenal Mm -hmm. musicians. So that was our purpose in trying to do this. Now, because of COVID and everything like that and some other things, we we've taken a while to get this up and running, but we had our very first in-person event in 2019 in Kingston, Ontario. And we were hoping to continue in 2020 and everything like that, but COVID hit. So we had to abandon that. But this year, uh, we're doing a, a virtual seminar, just like ITG is doing a virtual conference. And we have invited um, trumpet players from all over the world. As a matter of fact, we're focusing a lot more on European players. Okay to try and be a part of this seminar this year because we want to expose players here in the U.S. and all around the world to those players because that's where our next step is going to be in in in-person seminars. Mm -hmm. We're going to try and establish uh, a community in Europe that, you know, kind of supports the WTS and gets it more coordinated, more organized and everything like that. So we, we have got, I believe it's 24 artists that are coming uh, and that are going to do a 90 minute, each are going to do a 90 minute masterclass. Oh, that's amazing. Over, yeah. Over four day period. And the names are players. Well, just to name a few, Hokan Hardenberger, mm. Sergei Nakaryakov, Matthias Hoofs, um, Gabor Tarkovi. These are all European solos. Wow. Gabor Tarkovi was principal with the Berlin Philharmonic during like the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. I believe. maybe even 90s and 2000s. And then we have another um, Conrad. I, I forget Conrad's last time. He was the uh, principal trumpet in Berlin during like the 70s oh, wow. and 80s. Um, and he played under Brancarion and everything like that. And then we have we have some you know uh, U.S. players like Arturo is supposed to do it, but we we haven't confirmed with him. Jerry Hay will be doing it. Uh, Rick Braun, I don't know if you know that name. I Big know Rick, yeah. jazz yeah. guy. Um, uh, also, Charlie Geyer mm-hmm. uh, is doing it. Um, just a Bobby Shue. Um, I'm just trying to think of the names off of the wow. top of my wow. head. So Those are some so big of, names to begin with. So, well, it's yeah, and there's a lot more. There's just a lot more. It's it's really extraordinary all the people that we have. They're going to be a part of this thing. There is no 
there is no kind of moment in this whole seminar that is like kind of like what you would call a throwaway moment. Right. Every one of the classes is going to just be just wonderful. So that's what we're doing. We're, we will open registration probably just maybe the last week of this month. It should Mm -hmm. be open because our website is ready. We're just waiting to upload uh, certain materials so that nobody has a problem with registration and being able to pay for it. And that's another thing that we really, really try to, to focus on. We want to make this as cheap as possible. So for students, for the entire four-day seminar, 25 bucks. What? 25 bucks. I spent that's listening to that at Pizza Hut, man. What are you talking about? I, I know. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy. You know, we just thought that, look, we want to get this in, in these hard times with COVID and everything like that. I don't know about you, but my last gig was March 14th of last year. So I'm coming up to my one year anniversary of not having done a gig. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of hard times out there for, for players and everything like that. And we want to try and kind of welcome everybody back and create awareness about this organization by making it something that they would spend like, you know, a week in Starbucks, Yeah. you know, and you're going to get all this information from all these sources that is going to be, we'll also archive it as, as much of it as the part the guest artists mm-hmm. will let us, mm-hmm. you know, so that we can, you know, people can go back to the site and revisit it and stuff to, to re-listen to a masterclass that maybe they had to miss mm-hmm. or something because of their schedule or something like that. Right. So we're just hoping to, you know, make this as cheap as possible for yeah. students and everything and non-students it's it's i i don't know if we i think we settled on 35 bucks for non-students so it's going to be a wonderful event it's yeah. june 24th through the 27th and you can go to the world trumpet society.com website to sign up like later on this month it'll either be the last week of march or first week in april we'll have all the registration open all right, awesome. Uh, there'll be a link to the World Trumpet Society webpage in the show notes, so just make sure that uh, oh, you great. you follow, you support this organization because I mean that's the thing is that um, you know it's you know it's so cliche you know the you know, the children are our future uh, sort of thing, but you know we, we've got if you really love music and you love the trumpet, you want to see. Uh, the popularity grow. You want to see the skill levels grow. Um, you know, I I want to I, I want the next Jerry Hay. I want the the next Charlie Schuler. You know, I, I want the the next Bud Hurst to to pop up somewhere because I want to listen to that person and go. And that reminds me. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Uh, that reminds me. Esteban Batayan is one of the guests as well, and so is Louis Dowd as well. Oh, okay. So those are so that you know. I mean, talk about the next Jerry Hay. I mean. Yeah, Louis is—he's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, Louis and uh, Tom Walsh. Yeah, Tom is. Oh, yeah, as a matter of fact, Jerry gave him the off-the-wall horn. Uh yeah, yeah. That uh, yeah, Tom does some. That's some, how much he likes Tom. Yeah, he does some stupid stuff, man. <laughs> Just, oh yeah, and such yeah, a nice guy crazy. too. Him and Andy Greenwood. And, yeah. You know, yeah, all those guys over in London. Yeah, London is is really London is becoming like oh. L.A. back in the day. It's popping, man. Yeah, it really yeah, is. For sure, for sure. Um, 
So let, let's let's go back to like in your 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 history just a little bit. Um, sure. You know, I, I don't want to to, to spend a, a whole lot of time talking about your dad because I mean this is interviewing you, um, oh. but you know. Uh, you know, your family does shape who you are, but I remember when we were having our first, uh, we were hanging for the first time and we were having some conversations and we just, we, we, we just hit it off. It was just immediate. Like, you know, we knew each Absolutely. other from, you know, from yep. childhood, but there was a story that you told me about, uh, the time that your dad was able to come to one of your shows. I think it's probably the first time he came to one of your shows. And I wanted you to share this because this this to me was so it was so interesting because you know you you have excuse me okay uh you know like you're you're um in so many people would be looking at like oh well you're living on you're living in the shadow of your dad um and then there's this this was kind of a pivotal moment i think uh in in your life and in his life where uh the tables kind of turned for a second so um Ever so slightly. Ever so slightly. <laughs> Slowly the wheels turn. Yeah. Uh, but just now I want you to share it because I think there's a lot of power in that for people where, you know, if you're struggling to find your own way, especially if you do come from a musical family or even if you don't, you know, if, you, if your dad was a, a, a hardware store owner and you decided you wanted to be a, a trumpet player, you know, uh, the, that this moment about when when your when your parents can realize that the the path that you're on is the path that you're supposed to be on, I think there's so much power in that. So if you don't mind sharing that story, that'd be great. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, I'll preface it by saying that my father and I, because I was a child of the 60s and everything like that, we, we had a little bit of a contentious relationship in, in, in many ways when I was growing up. And so, you know, I, I was very rebellious and, you know, just, you know, kind of a knucklehead, of course. And uh, so in, in the back of my mind, I was, there was part of me, I think, that always wanted to try and prove that I could even do the things I wanted to do on trumpet, even without his help. It was kind of a stupid, immature kind of decision because I didn't really realize exactly who he was as far as just his knowledge and his, you know, just really simple approach to playing the horn. So anyways, you know, over the, you know, the years and everything, I, I you know, ended up going to the service and then getting out and uh, going to the West Coast to go to school at Pepperdine and thereby I could be closer to Jerry and all the guys and learn more about playing in that situation in LA. So my father was never really close to me in that respect to be able to see what my career was doing. And then I got, I got the gig playing lead trumpet at Harrah's um, uh, in Reno and then Lake Tahoe. So I was playing with people like Sammy Davis and Frank Sinatra and, you know, 
Helen Reddy, Tony Orlando, all the, the, the acts of the day and playing lead trumpet on those shows and everything. But, and I know that my dad was, he was kind of proud of that because I have former students of my father saying, oh yeah, your dad used to talk about you all the time. Well, he never talked to me. Right. And that's just kind of that father-son dynamic that always seems to creep in for a lot of fathers and sons. So anyway, uh, I got the Tower of Power gig while I was working in Lake Tahoe. Uh, Mick Gillette started, uh, you know, uh, his wife didn't want him to be on the road anymore. So Mick asked me if I wanted the gig after I'd been sitting in with them for almost a full year. And so I got that gig, but the story you're talking about was after I left Tower of Power and I was with Rod Stewart's band for about two years and we did a European tour. And as it happened, my father was doing a masterclass at the Richard Strauss Conservatory in Munich with a guy named Wolfgang Guggenberger, who was one of his students and a uh, very well-respected uh, teacher over there. And so it turned out that Rod Stewart was going to be in Munich at the same time that my dad was going to be in Munich. So we decided, okay, let's try and, you know, hook up, get, grab dinner or something like that, and then you can come to the show. So I uh, basically met up with him, and we went out to dinner with Wolfgang and his wife and we noticed that it was kind of starting to get late so we had to take uh, you know uh, Wolfgang drove us back to my hotel where I would catch the bus and then just go to the the, the Olympia Hall in Munich uh, to play the concert and then they'd meet up with me afterwards because they had you know backstage passes and tickets and everything like that so anyways we started running late and I got to the hotel and the bus was gone. So I'm panicking going, oh man, what? And, and Wolfgang, just quick thing, he says, come on, I'll just drive you there. Well, about maybe two miles from the venue entrance to the backstage area, it just, just screeched to a halt. It was, there was just, it wasn't moving because everybody was getting into the parking lot right. for the Olympia Hall and it seats like 20,000 that kind of thing. So I, you know, I, I don't know what to do at this point. So Wolfgang again with quick thinking decides he's going to go up onto the sidewalk and start driving down the sidewalk. And I'm, th these sidewalks are really wide, kind of like down the Champs-Élysées in Paris and right. real wide. Everything. So he's driving down and all of a sudden these cops like start jumping out in front of him and saying, hop, hop, hop and everything. And so they come up to the window and Wolfgang, explains to them what's happening that I'm in the band that I need to get into the venue to start the show and everything. So me and my dad are in the back seat and Wolfgang and his wife are in the front seat. And the cop says to Wolfgang, follow us. So we get this screaming police escort going into the back of the hall. My dad is looking at me like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> <laughs> So we get to the backstage area. I get in, I run in, I get changed, and we do kind of a band warm-up doing like, you know, an acapella thing with, you know, just warming up a little bit for the whole band to start to focus as a unit. And my dad is backstage with us and everything with Wolfgang and his wife. And so 
the concert starts and, you know, I go up on stage and my dad was supposed to go out in the audience. Well, the only thing that I didn't realize was that the it was an open, a festival seating crowd. There was no seats. Right. So it's like, you know, I just, I'm just imagining he's in this mosh pit and he's going to end up crowd surfing <laughs> or something like that. He crowd surfed up onto the stage or something. And so anyways, I'm, I, you know, playing up on stage and all of a sudden I look and he's like kind of wandering around backstage and I, I managed to get his attention while, while I'm on stage playing, I point him over to go to the soundboard and everything. And, um, I had a break, so I went down off the stage through this little tunnel we had that would, you know, go out to the uh, the sound soundboard area. It was the monitor board, actually. But he was standing there, and I go, so, so what do you think? He goes, I have never seen anything like this in my entire life. And I said, yeah, it's a little different than a, than a symphony performance and everything like that. And he goes, in my wildest imagination, I, I didn't even imagine this. What And what really floored him was the way Rod Stewart had the audience just in the palm of his hand. Yeah, Everything that he would, would sing would get repeated back to him and everything. And it was funny because after the show was over, I could tell that his attitude towards me had changed just a little bit you know it was like there was a little bit of a newfound affirmation mm -hmm. shall I say maybe not respect totally but an affirmation that I what I was doing I was doing at the best level I could and I was executing my my horn well mm -hmm. and stuff and he ended up talking to Rod Stewart back at the hotel and it's it's too bad. I wish I would have stayed with him because I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. Oh yeah, for that conversation because they ended ended up talking for about you know twenty minutes or so. And the only thing I could get out of my dad, he said, oh, we were talking about you a little bit and stuff like that." But I, I think he was just really amazed at how Rod commanded this this respect and everything from the audience and this this adoration too he had never seen anything on that level either so yeah. it was kind of one of those seminal moments in our relationship where i think he gave me some credibility as a trumpet player mm -hmm. which felt very good you know kind of resolved some issues for me too yeah well that that's great you know and and yeah i certainly understand you know rocky upbringings and you know having these kind of contentious relationships with your, your, uh, your father in terms of, um, you know, the feeling, the pool the in one direction. The direction yeah. of my life. Yeah. Basically. And, you know, for, for me, you know, uh, yeah, I, I didn't, I did not, my, my father was a musician for many years, but, uh, you know, he was in the ministry when I was born and, and there was that pull towards that. And, you know, I felt, I felt pulled and pushed and tugged and tied down and all that sort of stuff and, and ro ro rolled it against it basically. But, you know, now at this stage of my life, I look back at it and I, and I, I realize that I'm actually doing uh, fundamentally the same thing, but I'm just, I'm choosing my own path. I'm not Different doing it exactly chance. the same way, 
I'm, but I'm expressing that that need to make the world a better place, to to bring peace to people's lives, in just a slightly different manner. And so, much like you, you know, and that was the point that you and I kind of uh, kind of jived on. It's like, yeah, you know, it's it's great when you can look back and see the uh, the the input and the influence. Um, and, and see how you are becoming. Thanks to to your upbringing, you you have become this really great person and this great talent. Uh, oh, but at yeah. the time, it's like, holy hell, this is the last thing I want to do. You know? Yeah. Right. So. Well, it's you know, I mean, I, you know, the the whole thing with my, the dynamic between my dad and I, uh, I, I think it just got to a place where he finally kind of acquiesced that that maybe I did have some success doing what I'm doing and, and stuff like that. And again, all the students that have come up to me and told me stories about him telling stories about me to them, like Mark Hughes in Houston said that, you know, he used to talk about me all the time, but he never imparted that to me just because of that yeah. generational mm-hmm. Uh, approach to fatherhood that I think many fathers during that time period really needed to portray a sense of strength and a, a strength, uh, a sense of steadfastness yeah. and so, uh, uh, solidity or, or whatever, you know, so it's like, you know, when I was growing up, you didn't question him about what you were supposed to do if he told you to do something. You just didn't. Yeah. It was just one of those dynamics during those times, which completely has changed now. Fathers are a lot more open with their sons, I think, it, it, as a rule. Yeah. But, I mean, there's always going to be father and son, you know, kind of. Yeah, it's always it's always going to be that way. Yeah. But, you know, and it's being careful not to, to go too far the other way and, and, you know, just, you know, trying to be the buddy all the time. And, and you know, exactly. it, it's finding yeah. that, that, that fine line between being the parent and, and being the, the, the head, uh, uh, the discipline, uh, but then also the love and the support and the understanding. And, um yeah, the yeah. pendulum sweet swings to yeah. varying degrees. Yeah, it's, it's just finding thing. that balance, man. You know, you, you it. the last thing you, the balance of that. Yeah, and so you know, I guess you know the big takeaway for me, or you know, for for our listeners would be, you know, if you're if you're proud of somebody, whether it's your your son, your daughter, your brother, sister, your student, uh, whatever it is, don't be afraid to tell them. You know, because sometimes well, that trying to make even even if it's not you know if it's something that you're criticizing or something like that, try and do it with some sort of positive reinforcement because I mean, the the old adage of getting more flies with honey than vinegar, it really is an adage for a reason. Yeah. So in that respect, yeah, I think it's really, you know, very important. Yeah. And I think it brings a full circle to, you know, what, what you were talking about with uh, the, uh, the new books that you guys are putting out because, so much of what holds us back, whether it be in, in music or, or any other aspect of our lives, is is that fear of failure, the you know, how we're gonna be perceived if we don't live up to standards or expectations and things like that. And uh I think we have to do everything we can to make it um I don't want to I hate to say easier, 
uh, we want to remove as many of the obstacles as possible because, I mean, life is hard. The processes are always going to be hard. You know, growth is, is difficult. But uh, yeah, you don't want to throw extra work in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let, let's give you the, the, the most direct path to, to success. And, uh, you know, so I think the things you're doing with the book, the things you're doing with WTS, those are all great steps in the right direction to get people moving that way. Yeah, I sure hope so. I, I, I'm, I feel very, very good about this organization right now because we have uh, a collection of really, I think, the right people on the executive level that are helping to get this thing organized more and more proactive. So that's one thing I'm very encouraged about. And we're, we're going to be really trying to be you know, very proactive about fundraising and everything like that to try and get, you know, to achieve the goals that we're setting ourselves for ourselves and everything in that respect. Yeah. So uh, what's going on? This is completely off uh, off the, the current train of uh, discussion. What's going on with you in baseball, man? Well, you know, baseball, because of the, you know, the, vi- the virus and everything like that, it's, it's, you know, been kind of a drought for me in some respects. I do keep in touch. I have friends, uh, really, really close friends now that are are all kind of in positions of power now. Uh, one of my best friends, and he was going to be my best man at my wedding. Um, uh, if my brother, you know, wasn't going to be able to fly down to Texas, uh, is now is now the vice president of the Baltimore Orioles. Oh, so he's he's a real close friend. So I kind of keep up with what's going on in baseball through him and through his former assistant when he was vice president of the Nationals. She is now the executive assistant to Stan Kasten and Bob Wolf in Los Angeles. So whenever I'm in those areas and everything in the past, I mean, uh, especially Cheryl, because uh, I've, I've, she's been in place a little longer than my friend Mike and everything. So, as a matter of fact, when I was doing the interviews with Jerry and stuff, I took Jerry to um, a Dodgers game. Yeah. And she got us tickets, like you know, right behind the behind home plate and everything with access to the restaurants and everything. The first time I took them, we got, we were in the owner's box Uh in the sky boxes at the Coliseum in LA. And it was really great because Cheryl came up and said, okay, well let's, let's all go down to eat here in the restaurant and everything like that. It was fully comped and everything. And it was the, the probably the first and only time I actually impressed Jerry Hay (laughs) with (laughs) with something that I could do. So he, you know, he was, he's a big Dodger fan. So yeah. he really got a kick out of that. And then I took him again to, to see another game um, in 20, it was 2018. Or maybe it was 2019. I forget which one. And we sat behind the plate and then we still had all the restaurant privileges and all that kind of stuff. So with that, and then there's another friend of mine that was a ball player from Detroit and Kansas City. I, I keep in touch with him all the time. He was a, uh, a, he's been a friend of mine for about 20 years now. And he played, um, played pro, pro ball, won a world series with um, Kansas city. And then he became a, a coach and he was the guy 
he became the first base coach. Well, he was with Florida for a long time, was with both their championship teams in the organization. And then he went to Florida because uh, John Henry bought the Red Sox. He went from Florida to Boston. Okay. A lot of those Florida guys got displaced when uh, Jeffrey Laurie bought the Marlins. Right. So anyway, we, um, uh, we've been staying in touch this whole time and everything. And uh, there was a story. I'm sorry. My brother just came in. Um, there was a story I was going to tell. Oh, yeah. He, he ended up with the Red Sox. And, you know, they won their first championship in 2004 since 1918. Right. And the Red Sox has been my favorite team since I was a little kid. And so I've been, you know, okay, there's always next year, just kind of like Cub fans and, yeah. and for so long. But my friend Lynn Jones was the first base coach for the Red Sox in 2004. And he's the guy that sent Dave Roberts in game four of the ALCS that stole second and eventually scored the tying run. And they ended up winning that game in extra innings. Uh-huh. Pretty sure that's how it shook out. And then they won the next three straight from the Yankees to take the ALCS. So they came from three games down. And because of that stolen base by David Roberts, who is now the the manager in LA, um, he scored that tying run and they went on to win seven straight games or, or eight straight games. Yeah. The four in the ALCS. And then they swept the Cardinals in the world series. So he was the guy that sent Dave Roberts. So, so that's kind of a, his uh, you know, claim to fame. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, so, some, sometimes it only takes that one decision, man. That one chance you take, and it's game of inches. That's it. Well, I mean, that's that's life. You know, that's life too. Yeah. Life is a game of inches, man. Yeah, yeah. So that's but I, yeah, I, baseball. I'm always going to be a huge fan, and uh, I'll always be a Red Sox fan, despite some of their missteps in the past couple of seasons. I, I don't really like all of what I'm seeing. Uh, there's, there's, there seems to be some, I don't know, some weird things going on Boston racially, which is not a surprise because that's, they've had problems before. Right. That's the one thing that, that makes it a little difficult sometimes for me to root for certain teams Yeah. because I want to see equity all across the board. You know, that's why, that's why I'm a Democrat. You know, I just, I want to see equity. I want to see, you know, sharing with cultures all over the world. And that's why I don't mind when we see cultures, you know, different cultures migrating to the U S I just, I really think it makes us stronger. Yeah. You know, we have this conglomerate of ideas and people from all over the world to base our decisions and our actions on with a full collective of different opinions and ideas to, to inform our decisions. So, That's that makes it a little bit difficult sometimes to root for certain teams that are yeah. showing yeah. Uh, opposition to that. Well, you know, it's actually kind of funny because, you know, we go back to that story that you were telling about, you know, being uh, the, when your dad came to the, the Rod Stewart gig. It's like the difference between the, the, the classical musician, the legit player and the rock and roll player, the pop player. Um, and, and, so, you know, there's a lot of, of, uh, looking down the nose at popular music from 
uh, you know, classical players, jazz players sometimes too. It's like, oh, you, you're playing, you know, you're playing commercial, you know, you're playing funk instead of, you know, playing straight ahead. But, you know, music is, you know, if, if we do music because it's a way of communicating with others, if we do, if we're playing music because we want to reach other people and we want to engage in other people uh, in a way that transcends our our societal barriers, then whatever gets that job done, it's it's great. So you know to 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 do that to have to be sitting on stage with the the CSO and and having you know the the entire crowd crowd you know stand up and, and applaud you know your performance of Mahler. That's great. To have you know hundreds of thousands of people cheering along and singing along with a Rod Stewart song or, you know, something like that, you know, it's, it's the same thing. You've accomplished the same thing. You've touched the lives of people and you've made their lives a little bit, a little bit better. Yeah, it's just the expression of that is, yeah. is a little bit different in a different mode. Yeah. Shall we say. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. the bottom line is, you know, you're using music. You're reaching to, people. Yeah. You're reaching people and you're, you know, and that's it. We want to make people's lives a little bit better by what we do. I think also that, you know, uh, just going in another direction on that, I feel that for the musician themselves, uh, having the shared experience with other musicians in forming this collective that is putting this, you know, this message out there is to me one of the most fantastic rewarding experiences of anything in life because here you are you are connecting with other people of different backgrounds different colors different races different religions whatever but you're all focused on the same message going out and there is nothing like being on a stage with musicians that are committed to that focus a hundred percent it is a it is a deeply religious experience in many respects. Yeah, yeah. And that part of it for me is the part that if I ever give up playing, that's the part that I'm going to miss because it's always going to be, you know, hit and miss of whether you're going to re reach an audience. Yeah. That's, you know, you never know what you're, you're executing up on stage is really touching people. And that's why this this one musical experience that I am still really focused on is here in Chicago. We have a band called Tributosaurus. Mm -hmm. And basically what we do is we do a, a tribute to a different band every month. And so we take 15 to 20 songs of like Steely Dan, for instance, and we will transcribe it, we'll lift it straight. Everything gets lifted off the, the record in you know completely intact so that if there's a cello on it we hire a celloist cellist to come come in and play and so course there's a string quartet on something like there isn't a lot of pop music right we will hire a string quartet to play with the band as a matter of fact when we did stevie wonder on do i do we had 28 people on stage holy cow just to be able to recreate all the tracks. Same thing with the Michael Jackson mm -hmm. show that we did. We had six background vocalists. We had four keyboard rigs. We had eight horns. We had, I think it was six strings. 
and then a whole array of lead singers and then the regular rhythm section with a couple guitars, bass, drums, right. percussion, that kind of thing. So that had about 24, 25 people on for like some of the off the walls and thriller stuff. Right. That kind of man, that kind of collective of people on stage doing that and having it come out sounding like you are actually playing with Michael Jackson is one of the greatest experiences of my life because we've done this for 140 different bands. Holy 140. Yeah. I mean, 140 different bands we have done. We have played live everything the Beatles have ever recorded. So all the albums plus the, the, like, I want to hold your hand and she loves you in German things like that. I mean, we go really deep into it and stuff. That's we're, amazing. We're kind of like the Civil War reenactors of rock and roll. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the way we bill ourselves. And, stuff. and oh, that to man. me is such a satisfying thing because you're getting to play the repertoire from all these different bands as if you were with the band. Mm. So it's it's been, we've been doing this for 17 years now. Mm. Wow. Incredible. That sounds great. So, so that's what about touching audiences yeah. and stuff. Our audiences, I mean, for some of the Beatles show, we were drawing like fifteen hundred people mm-hmm. over these shows and everything like that, and they're going crazy because this is the classical music of their lives. Right, it's all that sixties, seventies, and eighties rock. Yeah, that's the classical music for that generation. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, speaking of gigs, I mean, um, yeah, you've you've played, uh, you, you like talk, you played with uh, Rod Stewart, you played with T.O.P., uh, you did the Harris gig, uh, you you've played with Gino Vanelli, another one of my favorite artists. Um, what's been your What's been your favorite gig? I would have to say my favorite gig overall was the Huey Lewis gig when I was with Huey Lewis in the news for the sports tour. Okay, and that. To me, I mean, we were, you know, at that time, Huey Lewis was still just a little tiny bit unknown when he first asked the Tower of Power Horns to come out on the sports tour. And it, I'll never forget this. We, we were slated for these rehearsals with them, and it was just after their appearance on Saturday Night Live. And that's when the country started to really get to know them and everything like that. And that sports album was, you know, loaded with hits. Oh yeah, that was, a, that was a killer album. So going around the country and doing these sheds, like the Nederlander sheds and stuff like that, like Man Music Center, Pine Knob in Detroit, Poplar Creek in Chicago, they're all like, you know, 25,000 seaters and everything like that. And we were setting records for crowd sizes at every one of them and just this reception for the band. And the one thing that really was incredible about that tour was the level of musicianship each night when we performed, it was so clean. It was almost a little too clean in some respects, but not really. It still had that grease there. Yeah. That, that I always love to, you know, from rock and roll rhythm section and everything, and then a, a good pounding, you know, R&B style horn section. So that 
to me was the most enjoyable because we were all Americans and everything like that. And Huey was riding the crest of that wave, man. And it was, it was crazy. And the, one of the, one of the gigs that I remember most was Summerfest in Milwaukee, which had the old rock and roll stage was one of the last years that it was used. And it usually held, I think, I want to say it usually held about 25,000 right around there. We had 42,000 people packed in there. Holy cow. And people, I mean, people were starting to get like kind of crushed mm-hmm. everything up front and everything. And we're off to the side of the stage on a couple of tunes we didn't play. And it's like a triage unit in the back because there were so many people in there that it was over actually overcrowded. And so people were fainting and, you know, dehydration, all this kind of stuff. But it just said to me, oh, man, this band has really just gone viral, to use a, a new millennium phrase. But that that tour was just so much fun. And then we went over to Europe with it for a little bit and everything. And the Europe was real accepting of it. So that to me was like the most fun. Oh, cool. Cool. Oh, uh, man. All right. Well, I got two segments I got to get through here uh, before okay. before we can finish up. Uh, the first one, because, you know, we got we to do some serious trumpet stuff. So, you know, all of us trumpet players are gearheads. So this is a segment that we call Gear Up. So we want to talk about your gear. What are you using these days? Well, you know, I mean, not having played pretty much for a year. I mean, I put my horn down in May of last year when I saw the writing on the wall that we were not going to be going back to work in 2020. So I basically put it down and, um, but the stuff that I was using up to that point, I've been a Calicchio guy, you know, pretty much for the last, God, I want to say 30 years, maybe even almost 40. I've been playing a Calicchio since about 76, 77. So uh, I, you know, I played on one Calicchio that was particularly bad for a while and then i started upgrading and got the 1s2s and everything and i've got a few of those that i use now and uh that horn is a really good live horn it just it's got this zip to it you know it's not it's not the greatest recording horn it's a little bit too much sizzle but when you're playing with a rock and roll rhythm section and stuff that has a lot of those frequencies, especially coming from the bass and the low kind of power chords from the guitar and everything like that, it tends to wash out a lot of the highs on stage and stuff. And when you've got a horn like a Calicchio, it to me, it gives you the ability to kind of cut through that and still feel like you're getting heard yeah. through this morass of canceled out frequencies. Yeah that you encounter on in a live performance. Uh, recording wise, I, you know, I think that if I was doing a lot of recording, I would probably gravitate more to the Bach and everything like that. They've got a pretty good new 190 that B flat that, that they've been um, uh, putting out for the last few years now. Yeah. And that seems to be a, a really good horn, but I think, you know, if, if I had my druthers on a Bach, I want to try and find an old Mount Vernon 
because that's what I started on when yeah. my dad got me my first trumpet. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, and then I, I'm playing a Reeves mouthpiece still, you know, and uh, it's funny because uh, I, Jerry actually gave me his three C that he used to play. Okay. And so okay, Jerry's not playing anymore. He hasn't played since like 2006 right. or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so he gave me his old Bach 3C because I was going to get it copied and everything like that. And I still might do that. But both, basically, I've been playing this Reeves 43 uh, SW for the last like 20 years or so. Yeah. Now, having not played in 10 months, I've started getting back on the horn and I took it down. Uh, John Snell uh, was kind enough to send me uh, two or three uh, different models, and I dialed it down a size because you know I've got no muscle right. tone left. So I'm I'm down to a 42 now, and it's not the wide rim; it's just the the regular see, rim. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to see how that feels and see if I even want to come back to playing. I'm not sure that I will or not. Mm-hmm. You know, it depends on how long into this year we have to wait before we can actually get back to work. Yeah. So, but that's that's basically my gear, Yamaha flugelhorn. When I have to play it, and somebody twists my arm, uh, the Shoki P54 piccolo. When again, somebody has to twist my arm to play that. We have to play Penny Lane. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's basically all I play it on. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. All right. Well, um, and it's interesting what you said about um, you know the playing in, in a in a rock and roll band or you know. Uh, that the the difference in the acoustics, you know, when, when you're on when you're playing on stage, because yeah, when I had my horn built, uh, I intentionally went really really uh, directional on it, and uh, you know, I have a titanium bell, and it just it it just it rings, and it's like a laser. You know, and right. it's it's not it's not the prettiest horn. You know, if I was going to be playing, not that I would ever want to play legit, uh, not that you want to hear me play legit, but you know, for for playing in in a, a a funk band or something like that, it's great because it is so directional that it can ride a little bit over that, like you yeah. said, that morass of of uh, yeah. of the noise. Of lower frequencies. Yeah, yeah. So it can it can kind of sit up on top. And uh, you not have to push it. Like, could could I get the same sound out of a Bach? Yeah, but I'd have to push it. And and with this, I can kind of sit back and let the horn do the work. So, well, in that respect too, we are all kind of uh, at the mercy of the sound engineers out front. Oh yeah. And you know, I I've been in so many situations where sound people just don't know how to mix horns. Exactly. They're, they're used to doing rock bands and, and stuff, you know, even just bands just without horns and, and everything like that. So when that element is, is introduced into the mix, they don't realize, number one, you don't have to have the horns out front in the mix. That's the, the one uh, end of the spectrum, but you can't dial them so far back that you can't hear them in the mix. And it's, it's almost like I look to those Jerry Hay recordings mm-hmm. of what the balance should be between the horn section, the rhythm section, and the vocals. And basically, you want to be just a little bit down from the vocals. Mm-hmm. 
You know, you don't want them competing with the vocals, but you do want them to ride a little bit above the rhythm section because yeah. it's going to it's going to be a different uh, element of the compositional structure right. of a of a given tune. So you want all those elements to be able to speak without clashing mm-hmm. or washing out one of those other elements. Yeah, yeah. My my pet peeve has always been um, like for monitoring uh, that uh, you know the sound man would always want to do the the horn sections like you know one by one, uh, and you know okay how's your how's your monitor mix perfect 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 hear myself great hear myself great and they test the horn section okay can you hear yourself okay great, but they never do it with the whole rhythm section. You know, it's like, yeah, I can hear myself now, but as soon as the drummer hits that crash cymbal, all bets are off. So, you know, it, it's not under, it's, it's understanding that we don't have the ability. Well, you can smack harder like a drummer does, but it, that only works so long and you it, can't reach over and turn it up to 11. Exercise, it's an exercise in frustration at times, too, because yeah. I'm sorry, no matter what you do on an acoustic instrument, you're never going to compete with an electronic instrument or yeah. voice. Yeah. So the, the first thing that is important to me, almost more important than the volume coming out of the monitor, is the EQ mm-hmm. of the monitor. And what I tell sound engineers, especially monitor guys, I don't really, I do care about what's going out front. I would love to be heard for all the efforts that I'm making and everything like that. But you can't really do much about that. Yeah. But um, with the monitors, I always tell monitor guys, to go ahead and start out flat and then take the highs, dial them up to about 11 o'clock, take the lows, dial them up to about eight o'clock and then wash out the mid range, take them down to like six o'clock. And that way you're getting just highs and lows. So all those mids that make that, that kind of nasal sound, you know, coming back in a monitor, those are all washed out of there. And you're getting some highs for that sizzle and lows for beef. Yeah. And everything. So that's the way I tell an inexperienced monitor guy, just wash, you know, flatten us out, then put the, the, the highs through 11, wash down the mids to six or maybe even five, and then take the, what should we call it, the lows up to about seven or eight. Yeah. Right. And that, that usually gives them a good starting point to get a fairly decent sound. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Because it, EQ is in, in many ways more important than volume. Because, you know, yeah. if your EQ if you is wrong. you yourself in it with a sound that you can enjoy, yeah. even if it's a little down in the mix, just because of stage volume, mm-hmm. you know, and you don't want it to go too screaming high on stage. Because, like with me, with Tribute to Source, there's so many open mics yeah. that you really got to watch out with that stuff, you know, and stuff. We've got, like, sometimes, you know, 35 open mics on stage. And stuff. So you got to really be careful that you're not, you know, redlining stuff and having it bleed over into, you know, other yeah. other microphones and things. Well, you know, actually, this is, a, this is a fascinating conversation, and is maybe something I need to do for a future episode is, is uh, to get guys like uh, you and uh, Dan Fernero and um, you know uh, that. Wayne. Uh, well, Wayne, I, I, a little more Dan, a little more than Wayne, and I will say, th- and I will say this because of this that. Um, Dan has has spent a lot of time playing, uh, like playing with Harry Kim, and his horn oh, section. Yeah, sure. You know, and so I'm talking. It's the difference between playing, uh, you know, in a, a studio or playing uh, like on a, a show production, 
and sure. playing on a stage when you're playing for, you know, a hundred thousand people. Yeah. If you're talking about live sound, yeah, that's, that's very true. And the other guy that's really, really incredible at that, of course, is Jerry. Yeah. He has studied engineering with the best of them. I mean, uh, Bruce Sudin, all those, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. Quincy recordings and everything like yeah. that. He basically would nail him down in the studio and say, okay, which mic are you using for this? Which mic are you using for this? And and Bruce was one of those guys that, you know, basically bought these mics back in the 50s and he was the only one to ever touch them. Yeah. Like these Neumann, like uh, KM54s and stuff yeah. that are great for recording the whole section and stuff about six feet away or the Royer mic mm -hmm. mics and everything that are ribbon mics, but they can't they can't be beat up by right. trumpets. Yeah. Because that's what happens with, with diaphragm mics and ribbon mics. You can actually shred them with a trumpet sound yeah. because they're just too too much overload yeah. for the signal. Let alone so being let alone it, being on stage and getting knocked over and, and stuff like right, that. Right, exactly. So. Uh, give me just a good old sure fifty-eight. You know, a lot of people like to put 57s on horns and everything like that. It's too unidirectional, man. If you're moving around doing dance steps or something like that, you want something that's more omnidirectional, like a ball mic, mm -hmm. which the third, uh, the shirt 58 is. So I, that's my mic of press preference. Sometimes there's there's a couple of Sennheisers that are okay. I'm a for I'm, that as well. I'm a, four, I'm a Sennheiser 421 guy. I keep one in my right, bag. Yeah. That's one of the ones. Yep. Yeah, I keep one in my bag, and and if if they got a crappy mic for me on stage, I'll just pop that thing out and and sit it yeah. on stand. And that's that's a pretty. We used to use those with Tower of Power. Yeah. So. Yeah. Pretty reliable. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that'd be a great topic to go into, and you know, or maybe even you know thinking about that for uh, uh for your next big virtual event. You know, have a have a forum on on this topic. That's, that's definitely something that we are, you know going to involve uh, yeah. ourselves with yeah because the thing is that this is this is the kind of stuff that you don't learn if you're yeah. getting a degree in music yeah you know yeah they're going to teach you how to play the excerpts but they're not going to teach you about you know hey this is the kind of gear you should be having and this is this is the way that you should ask your well, sound person to do a studio engineering course yeah so. yeah yeah exactly and even then they don't really dive into some of the specifics for horns as much as they are about you know how to get a good guitar sound so you know, well this book with jerry should clear a lot of that stuff up because well we, I, we're going very into depth into all those specs and things i like want that. an autographed copy original first pressing from uh, both of you so anyway. no problem all right so here's the, the final portion of our show this is a speed round and this is a series of questions is brought to us by our good friends uh, Kenny and Richard with Robinson's Remedies. I know you know Kenny. Yeah, and Richard. Know well. yeah. yeah. So this is uh, the Robinson's Remedy Rapid Fire Round series of questions that go all over, all over the place. And I just want your quickest answer. Try not to think too hard. I don't want you to. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't think too hard. You might pull a muscle. So here we go. Mike Chickowitz. The clock starts now. Who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? Oh, wow. Probably my mom. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite book? Favorite book? Stephen King's The Stand. Hmm. What's the worst movie you've ever seen? Oh, the, uh, probably 
Ride of the Monster by Ed Wood. Ooh, Ed Wood movies. Ooh. Okay. If you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? Probably a, a television pr- producer. Okay. What's your favorite drink? Oh, talking about alcohol? Anything. Anything. Um, spicy Bloody Mary mix. Mm. Mm, extra spicy for me. Um, you can have a dinner party, and at this, at this dinner party, you can invite any three living people. Any three people living today, you're going to have there for an evening with you. Who would you want to have there? Well, probably Jerry Hay, because he, he'd bring the wine. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and then probably Barack Obama. Okay. Or Michelle. Uh, and then uh, maybe Quincy Jones. Okay. Be a good dinner party. Um, same party. You have three more chairs. They can be filled by any three people from history. So any three people that are no longer with us. Okay. Uh, I think um, Abraham Lincoln. Um, Bud Herseth. And JFK. Okay, cool. Lacquer plated or raw? Uh, I think plated. Okay. What's your favorite quote? Oh, boy. Well, my favorite quote is a quote by Gandhi that that says, and I, I, I'm going to have to paraphrase it, it says, tyrants through history come and go, but the way of truth and love always wins out in the end. Let That's us, the let, best I can come up with. That. Let us pray that that is correct. Yeah. All right. What's your greatest fear? <sighs> Playing Penny Lane. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was going to be me playing Penny Lane. <laughs> All right. You could only have one superpower. You could be granted one superpower. What would it be? To have like iron chops. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most overrated? Playing high. Playing high notes or playing high? <laughs> <laughs> Playing high notes. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to make it clear on that. Um, uh, what aspect do you think is the most underrated? I, I guess to isolate it as much as possible, phrasing, musicality. Yeah. Okay. That's very true. It is a musical instrument, or at least that's what they told me at one point. Uh, you can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? Practice. Okay. And uh, you're going to give yourself a piece of advice about life. Don't be afraid to try new things. Okay. And the final question, what do you want your legacy to be? I think uh, as a facilitator of my father's pedagogy, uh, I, I think that would be the best way to put it succinctly just to be able to make sure that he's remembered 
for generations because his pedagogy was so valuable and so universal in many respects. So I, I guess, you know, for me, my playing career, it's, you know, it's, it was an average playing career and I'm glad to do done the things I, I've done. But as far as leaving a legacy about that, I, you know, I just want people to be, um, get some benefit out of what I've done in this life. And that to me, you know, making sure that my father's legacy lives on is, is to me uh, kind of an important thing because he wasn't just a trumpet player. He was also a pedagogue and a philosopher as well. So. Yeah, awesome. Well, you are certainly doing a, a great job of that, my friend. And uh, I wish you nothing but the best success in doing that because I know so many people uh, have benefited from your father's teachings and will certainly uh, continue to benefit. And I think the additions that, that you're you're making to it, the refinements and uh, adding your own uh, experiences to this, I think that's, that's going to make it that much richer. So thank you once again, uh, Chick, for being here. You're, like I said, man, you're, you're my brother, and I, I certainly miss you. Yeah, I miss you too, man. It's I can't wait to get to do another hang. You know, oh, for stages. for shizzle. But I, I <laughs> you know, I have to warn you. I don't, you know, I don't have that uh, old Acura that I used to have. The the one with. Oh uh, <laughs> no! What would we do? <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, I actually have a four door now. You know. So. Oh man! Well, that'll be roomy compared to that last one. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! That so, was a great time. Oh, that was that was so much fun. So anyway. Uh, Thank you for joining us for this hang and uh, make sure you support uh, WTS, uh, support Mike and uh, the publication of his uh, father's material and, you know, just keep the love alive. So as always, peace and slide grease. We out. <laughs>